We're going to read from John 17, verses 9 and 13 through 18, so you can follow along with me on the screen behind me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Thank you, Sharon. Okay, so this morning, we're going to talk about the Lord's Prayer. And... uh, uh, how many of you, I assume most of you may know the Lord's Prayer, have heard of it at some point. I just want to start with a story, and that's a, a story told by John Cassis. He is, uh, was, in the 80s, he was the, uh, the chaplain for the Chicago Bears when Mike Ditka was the coach, and, and, and William the Fridge Perry was on the team. And anyways, John tells the story of one time after a game, uh, Mike Ditka was giving a pep talk to the, to the team of the Bears. And at the, during the, the, right before he started his pep talk, he turns to uh, William Perry, the, the Fridge, and he says, hey, when I'm finished, would you please recite the Lord's Lord's Prayer. And, uh, and, and he continued. And meanwhile, Jim McMahon was the quarterback of the team at the time. And he turns to John, who's this chaplain, and he, and he says, dude, there's no way Perry knows the Lord's Prayer. He says, I'll bet you 50 bucks he doesn't know the Lord's Prayer, right? And so then uh, uh, Mike Dicka continues with, with, his, with his pep talk. He gets over. And as he finishes, he turns to Perry and he says, he nods at him and he says, okay, let's take off our hats. And he points to, to William Perry. And he says, go ahead. And uh, Jim McMahon's just, just smiling broadly. And, and there's some silence for a minute as, as Perry just kind of collects his thoughts. And, and then the fridge begins, uh, begins to say the Lord's Prayer. He begins to say, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And, and John Cass is the chaplain. He feels a tap on his shoulder. And it's Jim McMahon going, dang it. I thought he didn't know it. I guess I owe you 50 bucks. Right? Um, and, and so... And so we can laugh, right? We can laugh because we, 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 many of us know it. And so how does the Lord's Prayer start? If you say it with me, it begins, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Wait, what? Oh, you guys are probably praying that prayer from Matthew chapter 6, the one that Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, right? And that's the one we often call the Lord's Prayer. But actually, that's not a prayer that Jesus would have prayed. Now, he tell, it's a wonderful prayer, but Jesus would not have prayed that prayer. We know why, because if you keep going, it says, forgive us of our sins, right? Probably not the way that Jesus prayed on a regular basis. But if we actually want to understand how Jesus prayed, we have an incredible chapter of the Bible that's devoted to one of Jesus's longest prayer in Scripture, and it's John chapter 17. It's an entire chapter. It's the only place in Scripture we see an extended version of Jesus praying, and we get to window into his intimacy with the Father. It's my favorite chapter of the Bible. It's an incredible window where we get the curtain kind of pulled back and we get to see Jesus communing with his Father in an extended form. We get to see him praying to the Lord and to his Father, and we get to see that intimacy. It's kind of like uh, being able to kind of sit and have a quiet time with like a, a, like a saint of the faith and just seeing how do they interact with God in, in, in their own space. And we get that window in John chapter 17. 
And uh, there's so many incredible saints out there that have given quotes about this chapter because it is so significant in, in Scripture. And my favorite one of the ones, I wanted to pick a bunch, but it's, it's by a, a commentator named Arthur Pink back from the 40s. And, and here's what he says about John chapter 17. He says, In John chapter 17, the veil is drawn aside, and we are admitted with our great high priest into the holiest of all. So the holy of holies. Here we approach the secret place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Therefore, it behooves us to put off our shoes from our feet, listening with humble, reverent, and prepared hearts, for the place whereupon we now stand is indeed holy ground. The famous Scottish preacher of the Reformation back in the 1500s, John Knox, uh, used to really call this the, the holy of holies of Scripture, the holiest of places. And uh, Knox has an incredible story. I mean, he was one of the most significant people in the Reformation. He came into regular uh, battles with, with Queen Mary, known as Bloody Mary at that time, because she had killed over about 300 Christians during that time. And, and, and she actually banned uh, John Knox from preaching. And at one point, she actually said that she feared more the prayers of John Knox than she, pre- than she feared the entire combined armies of Scotland, right? Because he was such an incredible uh, force for, 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 for God. Anyways, John Knox on his deathbed, he had his wife pray this chapter over and over and over and over until his dying breath. This was every day this was being prayed and it just kept being prayed on repeat until his dying breath because he understood the significance of what this meant for Jesus and for us. And I love that illustration of calling it the Holy of Holies because it really is kind of like that in the the Holy of Holies, that innermost place of the temple where it's behind the curtain and that's the place where God dwelled. And and when Jesus died, that curtain is ripped that separated me. We now have full access to God. And so by this chapter, it's this place where we get to go and we get to sit with Jesus as he communes with his father and we get that window of his own intimacy with the Lord. And so an incredible chapter to read again and again and again. And oftentimes when I come to, I I generally get that feeling like I need to remove my shoes. Like it's holy ground. Like this is beautiful, this window into Jesus's relationship to the father. So let's jump into this as we get a front row seat of Jesus sitting with his father. Now, remember the context as we're coming into this, as we've talked about before, starting the series we, we began six weeks ago in at chapter 14, which is coming after Jesus' last supper in chapter 13, where Jesus has told the disciples that he's going to be killed. And he's told them that he's going to leave. And that in chapter 14, he tells them that they don't need to be afraid that he's leaving because he's sending the Holy Spirit to be with them. And the Holy Spirit being with them is better than he himself being with them physically because the Spirit makes all of him available to all of them. And we see them telling them they do not need to be afraid, but they need to trust in him. But he also told them that they are going to be suffering many things to come. They will have to go through incredible trials, incredible pain as they go forward in following God. And he expects them to face, tri- expects them to face trials because they're supposed to be living as he lived. And Jesus was killed for what he did, and so they are going to be attacked and be hated because if they live like he lived, they're going to face what he faced. And so that's Chapters 14 through 16. And now here in... He's, so Jesus spent three chapters telling the disciples about the Father. And now he's going to spend chapter 17 talking to the Father about the disciples. As he kind of shifts his focus and now begins to talk to the Father about them. So chapter 17, verse 1, he says this. After saying these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so he can give glory back to you. So Jesus begins by looking up to heaven, and he speaks of bringing glory to the Father. Now here, being glorified is is clearly a reference. He says he's going to the cross, and he'll be glorified on the cross, but it's so much more than that. I mean, this has been a central theme of Jesus. In this chapter alone, eight times he's going to speak of giving glory to the Father. In fact, five times, just in the next four four verses, he's going to be speaking of giving glory to the Father. 
Bringing glory to the Father was kind of Jesus' thing, right? It's, it's what he spent his entire life doing was everything he did was focused on bringing glory to the Father. And, and the subject of bringing the glory to the Father is not often the one that we as Christians focus on so much because it's, it's not really that fun sometimes because it's not about us. Especially in a culture that's quite me-centered and narcissistic gospel kind of worldview that, that so many of us deal with in the American church that... I mean, I understand why it's the natural beginning of our faith. When we come to Christ, many of us were told, I mean, you get to accept Jesus and go to heaven, and so it's really me-centered. But as we mature in Christ, we are supposed to mature beyond the just me and mine and, and our family and our situation understanding and really start to then looking at God. What does it mean to be part of your kingdom, not just my kingdom? I mean, some Christians never seem to graduate beyond that. But Jesus understood that it's not about him. He understood it's about the Father, and everything he did was through the eyes of how does this glorify the Father? I want the Father to be glorified in all that I do. You know, I was in uh, Nepal uh, some years ago, and I was sharing with this young Hindu man about Christ, and his response to me, he's like, well, what do I get out of it? And I, I began to, to share a bit more about, about the Jesus and the gospel. He's like, no, he's like, in Buddhism, Buddha gives me this. In Islam, I get this. And in Hinduism, I get this. He's like, you need to tell me, how am I going to benefit? Because I want to know what I'm going to get out of this thing. And I just love the directness of his conversation. Like, he's just straight up, I know what I get. I'm doing this based on what I get out of it. And I think, honestly, as Christians, many of us are, are really in the same place. And people bounce back and forth for that reason. But Jesus says his life is entirely oriented towards bringing glory to the Father, and that that must be our lifestyle as well, that what brings him glory. And so he opens up this prayer by saying, the time has come. Jesus has been waiting for this moment. His whole life, all 33 years or so at this point, has been waiting for this moment when he is going to step and, and bring finality to what his work has done by going to the cross, dying for the sins of the world, and being resurrected again. In fact, we saw last week when, when we were looking at the prayer of, of Jesus, as he's telling the disciples how to pray. Notice that everything he said was the prayer that was effective. The prayer that he responded to was prayer that was for the glory of the Father. I mean, this has been Jesus' entire life up to this point. In fact, I love what John Corson, in his commentary, says about this. He says this. He says, Prayer is not the way to get God to do our will in heaven. Prayer is the way to get man to do God's will on earth. Once this is understood, you will find yourself praying in an entirely different manner. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Glorify me, he prays, so that you might be glorified, even if that means I am pinned to the cross of Calvary. So prayer is not the way for us to get our will, but it's a way for our wills to conform to his, for, for us to do his will. And that's a summary kind of of last week as we were talking about praying in the name of Jesus. And remember, Jesus' life was focused upon this. How does my life glorify him? And then he's going to continue. So starting in verse 2, he says, For you granted him authority. Now, speaking of himself, Jesus says, For you granted him authority over all people that he, again, speaking of Jesus, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, Jesus says, that they, being the disciples, know you, Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So now Jesus says why God will get the glory through his life. Because, he says, the reason God's going to be glorified through his life is because Jesus is giving eternal life from the Father to all those that he has been given by the Father. And this is what gives God glory here, is what Jesus is saying, is people receiving his eternal life, people coming to know him. This is Jesus' greatest longing, is that people would come to know him and that they would experience his eternal life, which is knowing God and knowing him. Now please get this again. Jesus is about to die. 
And he gives us this, this peek into his prayer life to the Lord, and this is what's upon his heart. It's not asking of things for himself, but he's wanting the Father to be glorified for, through his life. And chief among things that bring the Father glory is that people would come to know his Father and know him, that they would receive eternal life through what he does. And this is what's pressing upon Jesus right before he goes to the garden and right before he's crucified. Obeying God, bringing him glory, and people coming to know him. This is the central reality of what's on Jesus' heart here. And then notice here the definition that Jesus gives of eternal life. Now for us, how have most Christians defined eternal life in their life? You ask for a definition. I mean, it would primarily be about location and quantity of time, meaning most of us think of eternal life as when we go to heaven, we get this paradise in the sky and we get to live forever with Jesus and, and with our friends and our dead pets and whatever else it is that's up there, right? And that, that's kind of this understanding that, that we'll, we'll live for eternity in this other place. But is that what Jesus, how Jesus defines it here? Now, this is literally the only place in the Bible where eternal life is defined and described in, with specific measures is right here, and it's not defined by some random person. It's Jesus giving a definition of eternal life. And notice how he defines eternal life here. It's not defined as a quantity of time. In fact, it's a quality of life. It's knowing the Father and knowing Jesus. That is how Jesus defines eternal life. We should have our definitions be more aligned with his. A life of intimately knowing the Father and the Son. Now, I'm going to spend hours and hours going there. At some point, we'll come back for a whole series just on eternal life because it's so central to Jesus' teachings. I'm going to spend in a couple weeks, the week after Easter on Baptism Sunday, I'll spend some time breaking down this passage because I want to do that. But um, for seven, because we're in the first half of 17, I, I need to get to the main thrust of what he's saying in 17. But we're definitely coming back to that. My favorite, Dallas Willard, he, he talks about this and the, the life that we need to live is the eternal kind of life now that we need to live. It's not, we don't just reach for eternal life. We need to live that eternal kind of life now. And that's where we're going to be talking a lot more about in the future. So the primary text that I want to talk about today is going to be from verse 6 to 19, kind of the major chunk of this. We're really going to zero in on 15 to 18 as we get going. So let's jump to verse 6. Jesus says this, as he, now he starts talking about the disciples, and he says, I've revealed you, he's speaking to the Father, I've revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. So he says, the Father has given them to him the disciples. And he says, they, referring to the disciples, were always yours. You have given them to me, and they have kept your words. So he's saying, they have been obedient. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you. He said, now they recognize that everything I've ever done is because you are with me, Lord, and I am with you. And he says, for I have passed on to them the message that you gave me. They accepted it and know that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. So this is what's on Jesus' heart, right? He's praying over the disciples. He's talking to God, saying, I've been a good boy, right? I did my job. I've done what you called me to do. I've been faithful in every possible way, and now these disciples know you. His whole life is oriented around the disciples coming to know the Father and him being glorified. And then he gets to verse 11, and he says this, Now I am departing from the world. So I am leaving. They are staying in this world. But I am coming to you. So again, his emphasis, I'm leaving, but they are staying in this world. And he says, Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name that you gave me. So again, Jesus is focused on praying for his disciples, and here he's asking for the Father to protect them. And notice the repetition here of his praying in their name. Remember last week we talked about Jesus saying, pray in my name? 
Notice here, Jesus is living that out. He's saying, I have your name. I pray in your name. Protect them by your name. Jesus isn't just telling us to do something. This is where he has the source of all his power, he's saying, is coming from the Father and praying in his name. But notice in verse 11, what is Jesus' greatest concern regarding the disciples? Right there in verse 11. What is the thing that he specifically is wanting them to be protected with? Jesus is most concerned about their unity. In all the stuff that's going on, this is the thing that Jesus, the only thing here Jesus highlights of his concern for the disciples is their unity. In fact, he's going to spend the whole last section of this chapter, verses 20 to 24 and beyond, focusing just on that, and that's what we'll be talking about next week. And then we get to verse 13, he says this, Now I'm coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so that they would be filled with my joy. A wonderful thing to trace in these chapters is, is the, the, Jesus' emphasis that we should be filled with his joy. 14. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. So again, Jesus says that he's done his job. He's taught the disciples what he needed to do and, and so that they can experience his joy. And he specifically taught them the Father's word. In verse 17, he's going to define that as being the truth, that your word is truth. So he's taught them what truth is, and now the world is going to hate them. Why? Because they're not part of the world. They're like Jesus. They're supposed to be living in such a way, so much like Jesus, again, that the same things people did to Jesus, they will do to the disciples because they are not of the world. They're supposed to be in it, but not of it. And now when Jesus refers to the world, it's important to understand he's not talking about earth or a physical world. And this has been demonstrated all throughout the Gospel of John. When he refers to the world, he's specifically referring to people who have rejected him. Those who have hated him. It's, it's a group of people, those who have not heard his word, those who have rejected his word, those who are against him, or those who have not heard his word. That's the world here. So anytime he says the world, he's not referring generally. He's referring to people who do not know him or those who are against him or have rejected his word. That's what he means by the world every time you see it here. And so just like he said in chapter 15, he says it again, that, if those, that people will hate you because they hated me. And he goes on in verse 15, he says this, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. He says, Father, I'm not asking you to remove them from the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. So he keeps praying for his disciples. And here he asks God to protect them from the evil one. And as he's already said, his greatest concern is that what can Satan do? Satan can bring disunity among them. And so he's praying that God would protect them from any work of Satan to try and stoke division and bring other things that would push them apart. And this is Jesus' prayer for his disciples. He knows this is of chief concern to him, is the work of Satan in their lives, and specifically his work to sow division within the church, amongst the disciples. I mean, a prayer that's needed now more than ever before, it seems. But notice here. He is not asking God to remove them from those who hate them, but for God to keep them safe right in the midst of those who oppose them. This is so key here. The people who are literally seeking to kill them, destroy them, and wipe them out, God is not asking to remove, Jesus' prayer is not remove them from the difficulty, remove them from those who are doing this, but Lord, protect them right in the midst of all of this pain and suffering and people who are trying, who are, who are against them in every possible way. 
Jesus acknowledges that the disciples, like him, don't belong to the world, that they are different, but they are supposed to remain in the world among the people who are different than them. Not run to safety. Right in the midst of those who are the enemies of God, he's saying, Jesus, or God, keep them there. Strengthen them right in the midst of the enemies. Right in the midst of those who oppose everything that they stand for. Who hate who they are and everything that they do. And remember the, the situation of the disciples here. Jesus is speaking about the world. And the world is literally trying to kill them. The world isn't just asking them to vote differently or wear masks or, or teach them different ideas to their kids about gender or sexuality or something else, right? The world isn't just like that in those ways. The world is literally trying to kill them in this instance, wipe them out. And Jesus knows that in 10 to 35 years, the world will kill them, every one of them. Only John will live beyond that. So he knows what he's asking. By asking the Father to keep them there, he knows he is sending them to their death. And he says, Lord, protect them in this place. Don't take them out of the world. He tells the disciples, remain in the world. Don't run, but remain. I mean, do you think the disciples would have been tempted to, to, to hunker down into places of protection and, and just stay amongst themselves? I mean, obviously that would be a temptation. Maybe they would have been tempted to flee into Egypt or flee into another part of the empire to get away from the, from the attacks that may be coming. But it's clear that Jesus has called them to remain in the world, among those who do not know him or have rejected him, among those who are anti-God and opposed to everything that they stand for. And so let's be honest with ourselves for a minute. Do we ever face the temptation to, to want to remove ourselves from the world? want to avoid the difficulties of being amongst those who think differently than us and value things differently than us, whose politics are different, who they vote different, who act different, who look different. Where we don't have to worry about what our kids are taught in schools or don't have to worry about what's the, the influences that are going on around us. Where our governors and our city councils and our school boards agree with us. And we're all tempted, to, I assume, to be able to want to move to those kinds of places and, or to want to hunker down in a place where we can control all those things to create Christian bubbles around ourselves where we don't have to worry about the things of the world impacting us and our families. You know, I meet so many pastors in this area. I've been uh, following in, in Steve's footsteps, who he really knows everyone, um, and uh, been trying to get to know pastors. And every week I'm meeting with one or two of them and having lunches. And as I met with, with so many, the constant where, I mean, so, almost every church in this region has just been so impacted during COVID, obviously in so many ways. But one of the ways that's, that's affected so many of the churches is because during COVID, thousands of Christian families that are established here have moved out of state during this time. And many, for, for, for wonderful reasons, for family and health and financial reasons, others. But there's also many who have moved during the season primarily because they didn't like being in the world. They wanted to move somewhere where the politics lined up to theirs, where, where the value system was like theirs. We didn't have to worry about what the world was doing to the family. And I get that. I understand the desire to move somewhere less worldly. It's understandable. Because, I mean, I felt that was what we're our family so many times with our kids since being here. I mean, I, I've, I, knew, I thought I knew what I was getting into, but my goodness, hearing the stories of what's going on in schools and all the other stuff, I mean, so many times I just like, no, that can't be true. Now I won't say that anymore. And I'm like, yep, that's true. I guess that's just what happens now these days. That's what they're teaching three-year-olds. Um, I mean, it's just, it's amazing where, where things have gone. And it has made me scared for my kids, and it forces me to pray more. I mean, maybe we could say, well, Jesus couldn't have understood how bad it would get here in the Seattle area. I mean, he, he didn't understand what it's like in our context. He couldn't actually think that Christians should raise family in regions as opposed to God as this area that we live in, could he? 
But we know the truth. The Roman Empire was a thousand times worse than anything we've experienced anywhere in America. Or anywhere in the world today. Jesus was speaking to people who were literally losing everything because they remained in the world. And that includes they were losing their jobs, their families, their, their lives. They lost everything for following Christ in that time. Again, I understand the desire to remove ourselves from the world or to, to live within Christian bubbles where we just move from one Christian activity to another. And by wanting safety and comfort, because it is scary times we live in, in the times of not understanding with so many influences of the world that are out there. But Jesus has called us to remain in the world, right in the midst of it. Not to find comforts, comfortable bubbles around us in some ways that we can remove the world from us. He's called us to be right in the center of it, no matter the consequences. Now, obviously, there's nothing wrong with, with moving to a different place. I don't want to get any weird kind of stigma of people that are moving or doing anything. We've had a couple families move in just the last couple of weeks for, for wonderful, wonderful reasons. I don't want to create any elitism or anything like that about being in this area. But it, it's wonderful to move and, and, and doing what, what is best for one's family. But if we do move, we just make sure that we're actively engaging with the world wherever we go. That it's, and the heartbeat of moving isn't just simply to move from the world to get out of the worldly places and to be with places that vote like us and think like us and act like us. If that's the motivation, I want to tell you straight up, it's wrong. Because Jesus called us to be in the world and not to try and find places that reflect our values, but we are supposed to reflect his values to the world. And we should be persecuted for that. It should be hard because of that. It's not supposed to be easy. That's what we see in this text. And it's why he's saying they need protection because it's not easy. And our heart has to be the same as the Father and say, we want to reflect you to the world. I think of a great family. The Chios just left last year, and it was so hard to lose them. They were one of our closest friends to the church. Even the 15 years we were overseas in missions from being sent from this church. But they just moved to Idaho, and they're part of, of working there with, with unreached peoples. We're going to the schools there every week, reaching out to people from unreached nations who have never heard the gospel. And each week they're sending us photos all the time of all the groups of students they're meeting. It's amazing the work they're doing. If you guys are watching online, great to see you guys. Um, but so many Christians, we've moved towards a comfort-based form of Christianity. Especially here in America, it's, it's so evident, the contrast, as I travel, spent most of my life living overseas and coming here to America, and the, the comfort, the idol of comfort here is truly impressive. That following God, we kind of believe, we, no one would say this, but we believe that following God should lead to greater comfort, greater safety, greater security, greater material blessing, and if those things don't happen, we think that something might be wrong. Maybe we need to try something different. It's a theology that leads people to primarily associating with people who think like them, act like them, look like them, vote like them. And the disciples could have stayed right where they were, and they could have created that, hunkered down and created a bubble of those who believe with them, but they didn't. They understood what Christ's command was to do, was to get into the world, not to have their own insular communities, because that's not what Jesus called us to do. But let's go to the next verse. In verse 17 and 18, he says this, Sanctify them by your truth, for your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Now, notice, sandwiched in between here, between him saying that they are called to be in the world in verse 16, and then again here in verse 18, notice what's sandwiched in there. He says that he asked that the Father would sanctify his disciples. Now, if you just read that, you think sanctify, I mean, that's to make holy, so he's asking about them to avoid sin or something else. But that is not at all what Jesus is saying here. He's not using the word sanctify in the case of remain holy. But here, the word sanctify, I mean, all unit scholars universally agree here, the word sanctify has to do with the emphasis of being set apart. In fact, he already used this earlier in the book in chapter 10, in verse 36. Jesus says this to the disciples. He's saying, 
uh, are you saying of him, that's Jesus, whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world? So this is Jesus talking, talking about the Father sanctifying him on his mission to be sent into the world. The exact same language as what he uses here in 1718. Identical language, not by accident. He's saying that the Father has sanctified me. He has set me apart. This is Jesus saying this. He has set me apart to send me into the world on the mission of seeing people come to, glor- to glorify the Father by people coming to know him. He has set Jesus apart for the mission of being sent into the world. And so that's what he means here in verse 17. Uh, in fact, the, the complete word study dictionary, if you look up uh, sanctify, and the, the Greek word there is hagiazo, here's how it defines it in this section. It says to consecrate as being set apart of God and sent by him for the performance of his will. Right? So this idea of sanctify is to setting apart for the doing of God's will is what Jesus is saying here. And so what is the mission then of Jesus for the disciples? Well, it's verse 18. He states it directly. As you sent me into the world, I have now sent them into the world. That's the mission that he has set them apart for. That's what Jesus' entire mission is. And now he says that's our mission. The disciples are sent into the world in the same way that Jesus was sent into the world. Amen? That's our job. We are sent into the world, not to create our own communes, not to create our own places away, but be in the world, among the world, to be able to reflect his life and his love to the world. And at the end of John, he says the exact same thing again to the disciples. He says in chapter 20, verse 21, he says it this way. So Jesus said to them again, peace be to you, just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. This is his going away message. Just in the same way, the same mission that I have, Jesus says, I now pass on to you. Go into the world and reflect my life and love to them. It's the exact same calling of Jesus. To glorify the Father by sacrificially loving the world. And them seeing the Father. And specifically going amongst those who hate them. Who are opposed to him. Who have no interest in him. The ones that may we find offensive and difficult by their actions and their worldviews. And here in this passage, the Greek word for send, it's apostello. Now, apostello, what word do you think we might get from that? Apostle. The word apostle, it's, it's not a title or a calling to say, this is Apostle James. Right? That, that's not what it is. The word apostle, sorry, it's not a title or status, it's a calling, it's It's one who is sent by Jesus on his mission to go into the world. That's what apostello means. That's what apostle means. It's one who's sent by God on a mission to reflect his life and his love and his glory to the world. To reach those who've rejected him. To reach those who don't know him. Those who hate him and hate them. This is why the disciples were called apostles to begin with. Because they are the sent ones. They are sent on Christ's mission to keep doing what Jesus did reaching the world that is the apostles mission and that now is our mission as disciples we are also apostellos we are apostles we are the sent ones christ is sending us into the world in the same way he sent his disciples amen do we believe that that this is now upon us this wasn't just for then and there but jesus speaking to his disciples for history this is jesus's final prayer before he goes to the garden. His last prayer is a free man where he's lifting up the disciples in this way. 
And the vast majority of this prayer is spent asking the Father to enable his followers, his disciples, to go out into the world. That's the thing that's upon Jesus' heart. Revealing Jesus and the Father to those who don't know him. This is what's of utmost concern to him. The final four chapters before Jesus goes to to be crucified, and the majority of this is his longing for his followers to follow in his footsteps, to do what he's been doing, to actually follow his example, to love others the way he loved them, to do what he did, to go into the world, to endure persecution and mocking and hatred and death and different politics and different views on gender identity, to, to endure all these things in the world and to live in the tension of reflecting him to the world. And I would encourage you, go home after this. And this week, please, read and then reread John 17. It is one of the most glorious chapters anywhere in Scripture. But read it slowly and read it with emotion. Read it with, not like a textbook, but read it with the pleas of the Savior going to the Father, begging the Father on behalf of the Son and behalf of the disciples. And hear the cry of Jesus' heart as you read it. And read it out loud with emotion. I would encourage this. Hear his cry as he asked for God to glorify him so that he could glorify the Father. Hear his prayer for his disciples whom he loved so much. Hear his plea for God to protect them as he sends them into the world where he knows they will face the trials and the persecutions. So, as followers of Jesus, then, who desire to be his disciples, then we have to ask, what does this passage mean for us? We have to face the truth of this passage, that Jesus is sending each of us as his disciples. He's called us to be his apostolos, that we are called to be in the world, not to withdraw from it, not to avoid it, not to cultivate lives that are insulated from the world, but to be in it. John Stott described this uh, as rabbit hole Christians. And I kind of like that analogy. He said, so many Christians today, he says, are like rabbits. They kind of pop their head out of a hole and kind of like, they're kind of scared and they, they scurry to the next, the next hole of a Christian related activity and they scamper to the next Christian activity, trying to avoid contact with the world, to not be contaminated by the things, the worldly things of the world. And they protect their kids from everything and themselves from everything. And they just scamper from one hole to the next and then run home at the end of the day. Woohoo, we made it. We were untouched by the world. Avoiding being contaminated by the world, but in the result, completely disobeying Jesus. Because we aren't called to avoid it, we're called to reflect his life into it. And it's such a temptation to avoid the world and to flee. I get it. I love how Dr. Kent Hughes puts this in his commentary. He says, it's interesting to note that though Moses, Elijah, and Jonah all asked to be taken out of the world, not one of their requests was granted. You could add Paul to that list because he said he would rather die and go to be with the Lord, but he stayed for the sake of reaching the lost. He says, we need to ask ourselves honestly if we have functionally removed ourselves from the world. Christ prays that we will not. So that's the first question to ask ourselves. Have we functionally removed ourselves from the world? Have we become rabbit hole Christians? living our lives, dashing from one Christian activity to another without being able to reflect his love and his life to the world. We have the privilege, I've I've talked about many times and I'm not going to stop talking about it, that we get to live live in the Seattle area. If you're online, you're maybe somewhere else in the country. Sorry for you. We get to live here. I'm sure God loves that place too. Um, One of the least reached parts of the entire country is where we get to live. 
The most, there, there's more unreached people here than in most places that we actually send missionaries to. I don't know if you know that, but the vast majority of all missionaries actually work in places that are more reached than the Seattle area. That's just the reality. Only a tiny fraction of missionaries actually work in places more unreached than here. And it's actually going to get a whole lot worse in the near future here in Seattle area. It's only, or better, depending on how you define it. You'll see a smile on my face, because I think it's awesome. See, the demographics are radically shifting in our midst, whether you recognize it or not. And, and if you don't have kids that they're going to the schools around you, you might not recognize it. But if you were to go to any public high school or junior high around here, you'll see the vast, vast majority of kids don't know who Jesus is. He's just an idea. They aren't following Jesus. It's not like it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. And what that means is this upcoming generation doesn't know Jesus. And what we see as normal now will not be normal in 5, 10, 15 years. And that's exciting. Because the reality is more and more immigrants are moving to this area and they, get more, they usually have more kids than us. More immigrants are coming in with different backgrounds and worldviews, whether it's from Hindu or Islamic or, or Buddhist or, no, world, or no, no, no Christian religion at all. But we as Christians are going to become smaller and smaller minority in this area. And that is awesome because what it means is the mission field is literally coming to our door. Right? This is why we were able to leave South Africa and leave the mission field that we knew of 25 years because we knew we were coming to the mission field. Because God is bringing the mission field right to our door. We get to live among it. We don't have to get on a plane. You literally just go out your front door and it's right there. God has called us into the world. And so we must answer the call of Christ. We cannot live as rabbit hole Christians. We cannot make comfort our top priority. We cannot spend all of our energy trying to keep the world at arm length and protecting us from being contaminated by the world. We must heed the call of Christ as we're sent into the world. We have to reorder our lives. We have to reorder our calendars and, and how we live our lives to create space to be with those who don't know Jesus. I'm going to keep hammering this again and again and again. It means we have to change the way we do stuff. If we are not actively, through our work and our life, engaging with the world out there who do not know Jesus, we must make changes. It has to happen. We cannot keep living in our own Christian enclaves. So maybe it means changing how you buy groceries. If the only chance for you to actually be around people is when you go buy groceries, don't do online grocery shopping. Don't do orders. Go into the store and actually talk to someone who doesn't know Jesus. Maybe it means getting out as a family and walking the neighborhood and just praying for the houses as you go by and trusting that God's going to bring people outdoors to be able to do that. Maybe it means inviting neighbors for meals. If you have children, pray with them at night and specifically for the names of their friends and their neighbors that they know around the area that they would come to know Jesus. It means that we must intentionally pursue people from different cultures as well. If you're from this area, it means you must start pursuing people who, who are come from Indian backgrounds, Right? Because that makes up such a percentage of people that are moving in. Half this church should be Indian here soon as we continue going forward. Amen, Doss. Can I get an amen? <laughs> it will mean creating, making sacrifices to create time and space to show hospitality to people who don't know Jesus. It will mean saying no to some good things, even some fun things, maybe even some vacations, in order so that we can be present to show hospitality to those who don't know him. You know, I so love hearing the stories of so many in our community who are actively engaging the world around them. I'd say it's literally the, the, the most fun part of my job is hearing all the stories of so many people that are doing this so well in our community. Um, 
how they're loving the world, whether it be teachers who are pouring into the lives of their students and being a light among, among the students and the teachers, whether it's people who've adopted or fostered kids coming from broken backgrounds, whether it be uh, students who are pointing friends to Jesus. I mean, uh, where Sherry just told the story this morning of just this past week, they, they baptized someone who was one of the students that told their friend about Jesus and brought them to church. That's incredible. Those that are volunteering in shelters and food banks, those who are intentionally befriending coworkers at work and taking them out for meals from vastly different backgrounds and worldviews. Those who are caring for the homeless. Uh, I think the Russells tell me, I mean, last week they even went, they were invited by their neighbors, Iraqi neighbors, to go to an Iraqi wedding and they were able to celebrate in that way. That was awesome. Uh, the parents and grandparents who are, who are keep pouring into their kids who have walked away from faith. And I know through tears of the stories of, that are deeply, daily praying for them and reaching out to them and seeking to love them right back into the arms of the Lord. And that's amazing. It's awesome. We have to keep doing that. If you're doing that, keep leading the way. Keep showing the way. Keep, keep sharing the stories and the testimonies of God doing that we need to hear those testimonies more and more you know as a church we're looking for broader ways for us to engage the church during covid a lot of stuff got shut down it's time to relaunch a bunch of stuff and so i'm looking for different schools and apartment complexes just right in the vicinity that we can begin as a church to adopting and, and pouring into and being really to pour into that in fact if you have any connections please let me know that i'm serious about that with schools or any way that we as a church can get involved in that uh because i'm just starting basically going and knocking on doors here in a couple weeks um But what Jesus is talking about is not just big things that are once a month or once a year, big church events. He's talking about a reorientation of our lives that we are postured towards the world, towards engaging in the world on a daily basis. So we must be praying for the lost around us, but so much more we must be engaging in their lives. We must be praying, but we must also be engaging in their lives, allowing Jesus's life to be reflected through us. The weather's getting better, which is awesome. Hibernation is almost over. Right? The people are starting to come out of their, of their holes. It's been wonderful. I saw my neighbors yesterday for the first time in a couple months. That was fantastic to be able to see. Of course, they're in their backyard, but I was able to shout at them and say hi. Um, but uh, they're probably hiding from me. Um, hope they don't listen to this and realize, oh my goodness. Um, but we can invite a coworker to lunch. We can, buy, we can invite a friend to a, a home group or a meal. Or, I mean, in two weeks, we have Easter going. What a perfect time to invite people. Come to Easter. It's going to be a very safe service for those who do not know Jesus. We'll try and keep it less weird. We'll try and keep it really something that, that people can be able to experience Jesus. And maybe you're struggling with where to start as we wrap things up. I recognize everyone's situation is different. And this isn't about putting shame on people that are like, well, I can't do that because I'm barely surviving right now. And that's okay. Don't, don't think that now you have to go turn the world upside down. But start by praying for those around you that don't know Jesus. Just start small. Just start by praying. And then as you pray, ask God to create opportunities around the people you're praying. You know what's going to happen? Your eyes will begin to be open to the opportunities that he opens around you. It happens every time. So just, if you don't know what to do, you're like, I don't know any non-Christians, or I, my, my coworkers don't care. Start praying for them by name, you with your family, and then trust that God is going to open up their doors, and when they're open, walk through them with gently getting to know people. It's amazing what we can recognize as we start praying for things and, and, and partnering with Jesus and his heart for others. Maybe start by inviting a neighbor for a meal, because it's really hard to reach those that are lost when you only have a relationship with them. Amen? All right. Let's take communion this morning as we finish. You know, back in in John chapter 13, Jesus gathered his disciples together. And he told them that that he was about to be killed. And he told them that it was their job to be his witnesses into the world once he passed. 
And while having a meal with them, Jesus picked up the bread and he told them that he wanted them to remember him through taking communion, through continuing to eat this bread as a way of remembering that his body was broken for them. To never forget the sacrifice that he made for them. And so he gave us this idea of communion as a way of never forgetting him and that we would take the bread and we would eat it. We remember that his body was broken for us so that we could have life and that his life could go out to all the world and not remain just among them. So let's take the bread. And then Jesus took the wine. He said it again. He said, I want you to do this long into the future, to always do this in remembering me and my blood that was shed for you, that my death would give you life. And so we remember Christ, and we're all called as Christians to do this. It's a command of Jesus to do this. He commanded us to take this as a way of remembering that he died for us so we could experience his eternal life. And again, not just life for us individually, but that the world would come to know him. Amen. Let's take the cup. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for giving your life for us. Your greatest longing in the world is to glorify your Father and through that that we might know you and the world would know you. That they would experience your eternal life of truly knowing you, Father and Son. And you made it possible through your life, death, and resurrection. Jesus, just as we obey your command to remember you through communion, Jesus, help us to obey your command to go into the world, to see your kingdom expand here on earth. Give us courage, Lord, to embolden us to to leave our rabbit holes and places of comfort and venture into the world, Lord, to not be contaminated by the world, but to reflect your love to the world, Lord Jesus. Empower us to love others the way that you have loved us. Holy Spirit, guide us to those that you were at work in. Help us to obey Jesus. Reorient our lives towards you and your kingdom as you build your kingdom, Jesus. Amen.